The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Congratulations, graduates. You did it. You successfully paid a ton for your degree, likely using borrowed money from the government and elsewhere. Your reward for this accomplishment? A mountain of debt. We are talking about student loans. This is Game Plan. I'm Rebecca Greenfield. And I'm Francesca Levy. This week, we are talking about student debt, which is not only an issue for new graduates or people going to school or going back to school, but something that can follow you throughout your entire working life. Yeah, for the past few years, we've been hearing more and more about our country's huge student debt load, which is right now about $1.4 trillion. The reason we've been hearing about it so much is because it's a real problem. Yeah, so for some more stats... Last year, about 7 in 10 seniors who were graduating had a loan, and the average debt was $37,172, which is large. Yeah, that's a lot of money to be hanging over your head, and it's, it's, a, it's also a high percentage of people just walking around with all this debt. And I feel like around the time you and I entered college, it was just kind of expected that you would enter into this really intense contract where you were going to get an education in return for kind of being on the hook for this huge amount of money for all of your working life. And, you know, there was a lot, always a lot of talk when I was applying for colleges about, you know, workshops to fund it and how to fill out your FAFSA and all these things. But there wasn't any talk about what the implications would be for the rest of my working life. Yeah. And having debt changes the way you behave after school. It changes the type of jobs you take. So law students, for example, they feel like they have to go work at these big firms to pay off their law school tuition if they're lucky and can even get those jobs. Or you might go to a job that you don't really want because you feel like you have to. There are companies now that are trying to attract workers by saying that they will help them pay off their student debt, which is a new benefit that they're offering because they know it's weighing on the minds of these new grads so much. It's enough of a cloud hanging over workers that they count this student loan benefit as a perk that's like equal to health benefits. Yeah, because a lot of people were going into jobs and they weren't taking advantage of other benefits like 401ks because they felt that they had to put away money. And it is a significant chunk of your paycheck that you need to put away every single month until the end of time, it seems, just to pay off your loans. Yeah. And it's not just putting away money for your 401k, but people are delaying all kinds of decisions. We've read about how people with student loans are putting off buying homes, which has a knock-on effect on the economy at large. Yeah. I feel like there are all these things that we blame millennials for or say like it's a character trait of this entire generation of people, which a lot of it can be traced back to the fact that a lot of us are graduating with debt. So like, yeah, millennials are lazy and still live with their parents. It's like, oh, well, they can't afford rent because they're putting hundreds of dollars to debt. Or 
there are so many articles about like what industries millennials are killing. Millennials are killing everything. They're it, just industry murderers. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, they can't. They're going to behave and act differently because their financial situation is different. Are you sure it's not about avocado toast? Oh, yeah. This was a really fun article going around that said we, millennials, we millennials aren't buying homes because we're spending too much on avocado toast. Yeah, it's a avocado toast index is really affecting the global economy. I will admit that I I make avocado toast a ton on the weekends and it's a very cheap breakfast. <laughs> like it's not expensive to buy. You use like a quarter of an avocado and a piece of bread and an egg. Could not be cheaper. And you're a you're a basically a success story. So I feel like you're, yeah, you are you are a poster child for avocado toast and its benefits. Yes, exactly. But yes, I mean. We're joking, but what's going on here is so much news swirling around because millennials, anything makes for a good headline that basically shows how millennials habits are changing and that then kind of infers from that that there's something inherently about millennials that, you know, is making them do bad things to the economy. But if you scratch even a little, you can see that what's behind so many of these things is student debt. Right. And there are a lot of news stories about the hysteria surrounding student debt. Um, you mentioned that $1.4 trillion figure, which sounds huge. And there's even talk of a similar to a housing market bubble. Um, and so, like, we know we're supposed to be worried about this on a macro level. But I think a lot of people and a lot of graduates, it can be hard to wrap your head around, how much am I supposed to worry about it myself? Um, and to that point, there was a story that our former colleague Natalie Kidoff wrote about how most students don't know anything about their college loans. Yeah, this story pops up periodically, and it sounds kind of shocking, but basically people don't tend to, like, they couldn't name the figure of how much student debt they actually have, and they're also fairly unaware of what their options are for repaying it and what programs might be available to them to help them pay it down with, like, lower interest rates or a better program than the one they have now. They kind of sign into this contract early on and then, you know, automate their monthly payments, hopefully, or they don't, they default, but, you know, and then they just kind of don't think about it again. And since I'm no expert on student debt myself, we are going to talk to the smartest person I know about student debt, my very talented colleague. Shaheen Nasripour covers student debt for Bloomberg, and he is going to answer all of our questions about our student loans. Thanks so much for taking the time, Shaheen. Hi, thanks for having me on. So can you tell us how we got to where we are today? Why is student debt such a big problem now? The reason why we're here today, well, actually, there's a lot of reasons. One, there are more people who are going to college. Right. I think uh, a huge percentage of the workforce now has a college degree. This wasn't the case, you know, 10, 20 years ago. So more people going to school, more debt incurred. States are cutting back on subsidies that they provide to their state schools. So students, you know, for example, like I'm from California. When I was graduating high school, you go to UC Berkeley all in under 15K a year, full cost of attendance. Now it's like in the 20s. So schools are cutting back subsidies to higher ed. So colleges are raising tuition. Families can't afford it. They borrow more. Uh, colleges of all stripes have been raising tuition for years and years relentlessly. Um, that's about it. So if you're someone who just graduated, you're about to enter the workforce, 
and you know this is a big problem, but you don't really know what you can do about it. Like, how can an individual be smart and responsible about their own loans that they've already taken out? So if you've just graduated or you just left school, you've got six months to get your loans in order. You're in a grace period, um, which is offered by the government, basically six months to get all your paperwork in order. First thing you need to do is before even you find a job, in my view, the government offers what are called income-driven repayment plans, which is basically a bunch of repayment plans where your payments are pegged to your monthly income. And if your income is zero, so you have no job, no source of earnings, your payments are zero. And you stay current on your loans for 12 months. Uh, you check back in with the government the next year, make sure you know your income is the same, and you do that for 20, 25 years, your debt's forgiven. So that's my advice to recent grads. Check out income-driven repayment plans. If you're not making that much money and you owe a lot, you got to check these out because it's not worth putting your life on hold to make your student loan payments. Everyone else, honestly, same advice. If you owe a lot of money, you don't make that much, go to the government's website, literally studentloans.gov. Look up these income plans. No one in America should be defaulting on a student loan, in my view. There are too many options available to people where, regardless of the amount of financial distress they're facing, the government does offer these options to you, and people need to take advantage. So an income-based repayment plan, you pay back based on your income, clearly. Say you're a lawyer. You're making a pretty good salary. You're going to have to pay a lot back still. Yeah. But yeah. it's better than what? What is the alternative if I don't do that? The alternative is there's a, the government offers a standard 10-year repayment plan where basically they look at how much you borrowed, what's the interest rate, they figure out, okay, so how much at the current interest rate, how much are you going to owe after 10 years? So then they basically divide that total sum up by 120, so 12 months, 10 years, and that's your payment for the next 10 years of your life. So if you can afford to make that payment or if you can afford to pay even more, do so. But if you can't, you owe it to yourself to check out these income plans as opposed to just burying your head in the sand and thinking it'll go away because it's it's not. The government will get paid. That's another thing. I've heard that people don't know where their various loans are. Is there a way to figure that out? Yeah, it's actually kind of a problem. So the government has this huge database. It's called the you know, it doesn't really matter what it's called. Uh, <laughs> but basically, they have this database where it's like every person who's ever taken out a student loan or gotten a federal grant from the from the feds, it's in this database. Again, studentloans.gov. Go to this website, enter your, you know, you get a credential. So you give her your social security number and like date of birth. You log in and all your loans are listed. Private loans, they're not there. So if you borrowed from some bank, you got to go to the bank. But if you borrowed from the feds, literally, it's all on this website. And what do you? How do you feel about taking out private loans? Um, I think it depends, right? So I, like, if someone asks me, should they take out private loans? My instinctive answer to them, probably not. But depends on your situation. But if you can meet your obligations by borrowing from the feds, you're probably better off doing so because if you borrow from a bank, you fall behind on your loans. You know, after graduation. They're going to come after you and you'll default after like 60, 90 days. It'll ruin your credit. They won't really offer you that many options. Like you're going to have to pay up. Feds, first of all, it takes nine months to default. That's number one. 
Second thing is they offer all these income plans. So literally, I mean, I, I can't, the fact that people default, it really bothers me because literally if you make no money, your payments are nothing. It's, you get a bill, it says zero due, literally zero dollars. I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to get emotional. It just, it really bothers me that people default when like, because they they have no money. Cause like, you don't have to pay anything if you enroll in these plans. Do you think people are averse to the income payment plans because they think they need to be paying off as much as possible or do they just do not know about it? I mean, I think it's a variety of things, to be honest. I think one, some people just they're like afraid of debt. You know, we all I mean, I have friends who refuse to look at their monthly statements like credit cards. You know, they'll make their mortgage, but credit cards, auto loans, student loans, like they're just scared and they just they it goes in like in a box in their closet and they never open it. Other people, they get bad advice and information from their loan servicers. Loan servicers are these companies. They're the ones who send you your monthly bills. They tell you when you're behind. They're the ones you send your checks to or, you know, do your uh, auto debit from your bank account. These these guys, they don't employ enough people. Imagine calling your local cable company or your cell phone company and wanting help. Like you're on hold forever. You get to someone, that person doesn't really understand what you're talking about. You ask to talk to a supervisor, you get transferred around. Next thing you know, 45 minutes have passed and your issue hasn't been resolved. Same thing with student loans. Government doesn't pay them that much. The companies don't invest. So like they're employing all these people who don't know what's going on. And so you ask them for help. They have no idea. You're probably not aware of the income plans. And so you're Basically where you started. It's a bureaucratic thicket and you are a young professional trying to make things work and you don't have time for it. Exactly. Like how much do we get for lunch, right? Before lucky we get an hour, most people eat at their desk. I eat at my desk, so I probably take 15 minutes for lunch. And during that time, I don't want to call my loan company and like figure this stuff out. I want to go on TMZ or like, <laughs> no, no, that's your shame. I mean, actually, no, I want to go on Bloomberg.com. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so you had been talking about when you're taking out loans, like try to get a federal loan. What are some of the other ways if, if I'm going back to school or thinking about taking loans for my kids? What are some other ways I can be smart about going into debt? The best thing you can do, and the thing is like most people don't do this, is try to borrow the least amount possible. So like figure out how much you're going to pay. I mean, it's like basic budgeting. What's your rent going to be? What's your tuition going to be? How much are you going to pay for books? Like, can you buy used books? Can you like make photocopies of like your friend's books and like violate copyright laws, but not get caught? Like do all these little things to like save money. The biggest thing is like, don't borrow too much. There are university professors and like experts on student loans and financial aid who are saying like the biggest issue or one of the biggest issues that people don't borrow enough. Like too many people drop out of college due to like financial considerations. Yes, there are people out there who like get hit with unexpected costs and they have to drop out because they can't afford it. And like I get that. But so many people owe way more than they can afford. Even President Obama said, I want to say in like the summer of 2012 or 2013 like he acknowledged that a huge chunk of our student loans debt will not be repaid it's just not going to and reason is like people aren't getting good jobs they can't afford their loan payments like they're not really thinking about this stuff best thing you can do figure out how much you're going to need and do not borrow more than that and when you say don't borrow more than you can afford part of that calculation is probably like what your degree is actually going to net you in the end right? exactly like how good of a job you can get 
this is kind of a controversial idea, but should people be thinking more pragmatically about what they study in college in order to get a return on that investment? I absolutely think we do. Right now, go to the Census Bureau... (laughs) <laughs> okay, so no, he I'm loves not government touch. websites. So <laughs> you can go to the, the Census Bureau. You know they have all these stats on like American households, like yeah, how many, how much beef we eat, all this stuff. One thing they have is like earnings, and they have earnings by like education received. Literally one in four bachelor's degree holders in America make this no more money than the typical high school grad. So for a quarter of bachelor degree holders going to college, like. If you're talking about financial return, probably wasn't worth it because think about that. They had to like take time off work to go to school. They had to pay for that schooling. Maybe they took out debt and they come out and their earnings are no more than the typical high school grad. Like people need to be thinking about this stuff. But also, I mean, like schools know that grad degrees are a huge moneymaker for them. So they jack up the tuition and students can borrow up to the full cost of attendance from the feds, which the schools themselves set there is an incentive for the schools to charge as much as possible. And like there's this thing in higher ed where people associate higher price with better quality. So like $70,000 school, oh, must be great. Must be better than the $20,000 school. And so you have like people who are graduating with masters in social work, noble profession. Like my wife is a public defender. She works with social workers. I have the utmost respect for them. They're going to these programs where they're paying like 50 plus a year. They're coming out making like 35, 40. The schools charge it. The feds will fund it. The borrowers on the hook. Like I get the desire to want to do good. But at some point, like people have to think like this amount I'm paying for this degree. Is it really going to pay off? I think a lot of people are worried about what might change for the better or the worse under the new administration. Can you tell us about how things are going now? The fact of the matter is like the Trump administration, they are they are making it harder for student debtors to repay their loans. Like that is a fact. They are increasing collection charges. They are decreasing the amount of the requirements they're putting on loan companies. The Obama administration towards the end, they wanted to make it easier for borrowers to pay back their debt. They wanted to increase the level of customer service offered by these loan companies. Trump administration is saying, no, we don't care about that. So and then on top of that, they're like moving to eliminate certain like there is an income based plan right now. Or excuse me, there's a repayment plan called public service loan forgiveness, where if you come out of school with student loan debt, you work for any nonprofit or any government agency, nonprofit 501c3, right? Typical nonprofit. You make your payments for 10 years Anything of your debt remaining after that is forgiven, tax-free. Like, you're done. Trump administration wants to get rid of it. Trump administration also has said previously that they want to largely, like, move a lot of the the federal student loan program into the private sector. Right now, federal loans, they're an entitlement. If you've got a pulse, you can get a student loan. If you go to a bank, like they're going to frisk you pretty good before they lend you that money. And if you're higher risk, they're going to charge you more. So it's going to be more expensive. So that degree you want, it's going to be more expensive. That's what the Trump administration wants. Now, you know, they have this philosophy where less government involvement, let the private sector do its thing. It'll probably be better for the economy and for society, like on the whole, like after a certain amount of time. But right now, if 
you can't really put food on the table, you're struggling to do so, you can't really afford to pay rent, you want to better your life, you want to get a degree, get a better job, get a real career, Trump administration, at least in the short term for you over the next couple of years, they are legitimately making it harder for you. I want to focus on that public service uh, loan forgiveness program because I think a lot of people might hear that and get really scared if they entered a life, a career of public service, um, or you know, have already taken out loans with that in mind, that they're not going to get that forgiveness if this policy changes. So if you have student loans right now, don't worry about public service loan forgiveness. Like, It's in your loan contract. You are, If you're eligible for it, you can take advantage. The Trump administration's proposal, first of all, has, Congress has to pass it. It has to go through the House, has to go to the Senate. So that's like, for starters, number one. Number two, even if they were to move forward and Trump's plan were to be enacted, it can't be retroactively applied. So the way it would work is it would eliminate this option for future borrowers and future loans. So like, let's say you're a college student now. You've got a year left. The loans you've taken out to date would be eligible. Maybe like next year when they pass it, your loan two years from now may not be eligible, but stuff previously will be. If you're in it now, if you're a debtor now thinking about it, like you're safe. Do not worry. This is for future students and future loans that would not be eligible. Another thing I wanted to ask that might be different about the current administration. You've written a lot about this in the past, but an industry that the Obama administration was trying to crack down a lot, especially toward the end, was um, for-profit colleges. And when we talk about return on investment, those are some of the the worst actors in that way, right? You really get very little often for what you what you spend on a for profit college. Yep. Um, so, what is the what is the Department of Education under Trump? What is their point of view on for profit colleges and that sort of Obama era crackdown? Well, so far they are defending some of the Obama era crackdowns in court. So, industry. So, there's this new rule. It's known as gainful employment. Basically, it says the government will stop giving uh, students loans to attend certain you know, career programs if previous grads from those programs don't make enough to afford their student loan payments. So it's like after a few years, if a particular career program like welding at you know, such and such college, if their students aren't making that much relative to the amount they borrowed, the government will say no mas. So industry obviously is sued to overturn this in court because government's Funds nine out of 10 new loans, and it's a huge cash cow, and no one wants to be left out. Trump administration thus far has defended this thing in court. So if you're thinking about it from like a taxpayer protection perspective, like that's probably a good thing. On the other side, the Trump administration's education department has talked with former for-profit lobbyists and executives. And these are the folks who very strongly believe, like, look... We need to provide people with choices. And the more choice we have, the better the market will work. We'll have informed consumers. They'll be decided. Let them decide whether there are certain schools worthy of their time and investment. Don't have the government in the business of limiting options. That's like their sincere, you know, worldview. I believe them that that's what they that that's what they truly believe. And like their policy kind of flows from that. So Knowing that, you got to think like long term, the Trump administration is going to make it easier for for profit colleges because they want people to have choice. Betsy DeVos has no problem with like for profit K through 12 schools. 
So why would she have a problem with for-profit colleges and universities? You got to think that they're going to make it easier for for-profits. The issue is like, do we want a society where people have unlimited choice and where that choice could lead to a, their own financial ruin and be squandered taxpayer dollars, which are kind of a scarce resource these days. If you think about like the options we have in terms of, we got to fund social security, we got to fund Medicare, we got to fund the military. We have all these other programs. Like, do we want to let taxpayer dollars go to waste in terms of like people getting degrees that are useless and worthless and owing a bunch of debt to the treasury that will never get collected or do we want a society where people have unlimited choice? If they waste money, the taxpayers get repaid. Oh, well, at least people have that choice. Like, which one do you value more? That's the way I kind of think about these issues. Well, this was really interesting and fun. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Thanks for having me on. I think Shaheen knows too much. <laughs> yeah. His outlook is pretty negative on the state of student loans and the cost of college and the future debt burden and what it's going to do to our nation. Um, And I think maybe you might think like, oh, should I go to school even at all or take out loans or, you know, do I have to be the most conservative ever? And I I don't think that will I ever be able to afford to send my kids to college. Yeah. And I don't think that that is is the message. It's more like Shaheen said that he doesn't understand why anybody defaults on his loans. And that's because he is so knowledgeable that for him, there are all these resources and things. And I think a lot of people just don't know as much as he does. The fact is, is it's not really in anybody's interest right now to make those options really easy and fair and available to people. So to me, if you're not a reporter who covers this and is really steeped in it, it's really easy to understand how you might not know what your repayment options are or you might be so overwhelmed by the sheer number that you just decline to deal with it at all. And you kind of tune it out and hope it goes away. And of course, it won't go away. It will only get worse. Yeah. So to help with that, we asked Shaheen for some easy resources that people can seek out. Right. So if you have student debt and you are unsure what to do about it, your first stop should be studentloans.gov. Shaheen mentioned it a couple of times, but they have some really useful things on there. One of them is a one of them is a student loan repayment calculator that can tell you approximately how long it'll take you to pay off your loans based on your debt, and your your interest rate. And you can also on that website apply for income-based repayment programs. If you need a little more help than that, if your needs are more complex and you just don't know what to do about your student loans, there is studentloanborrowerassistance.org, and they have a whole trove of resources to help people handle their debt. If you're in the position where you haven't taken out any debt yet and you're still deciding on a college, you should make sure to go to this other government website called collegescorecard.ed.gov, and that has resources for every single college in the U.S. telling you basically how much you can expect to make after you graduate. Yeah, super useful, and hopefully student debt is a little... Less terrifying. And now it's time for Half Big Takes. Half Big Takes. You can call into our hotline and leave your own Half Big Take at 212 617 0166. This week's guest Half Big Take comes from Shaheen. All right, Shaheen, what is your workplace gripe? So we at Bloomberg LP get free coffee at work. Mm hmm. 
I don't understand why I see so many people on the elevators from the ground floor to our main office on the sixth floor carrying cups of coffee that they bought from an outside place. When we have so many coffee choices in the office, we have like a white mousse chocolate uh, coffee today. <laughs> no. The other day we had, I mean, that sounds kind of gross, but there's like hazelnut. There's like sustainably grown coffee. There's iced coffee. There's decaf coffee. There's like so many coffee choices and it's all free and it's all unlimited. I don't understand why people walk into the office holding like what are clearly four or five dollar cups of coffee, which like I get if it's a once week treat, like you're feeling special that day. You want to like have an enjoyable morning. Makes sense. Every day that's you're looking at 20, 25 bucks a week. Like, what is that? hundred bucks a month, 1200 a year. We get it for free. Like, what are you doing? I'm so not surprised that that is your point yeah. of view, having just spent a while right. talking to you about loans and money. You, yes. I, Very practical. Shaheen, has anyone ever called you thrifty? I'm a, I'm a, I do the treat coffee, but you, I also am of the same, like, I'm not spending money on free things. Both, yeah. uh, both of you are pretty, are pretty like responsible. We're careful with, with our money. I, yeah. I don't want to be the person who defends this practice, the practice of buying outside coffee, because I always end up in the position of like advocating for spending too much money on these things. Yes. But, um, so I would say hypothetically, were one to spend money on coffee when perfectly good free coffee is available to them. They are not paying for the coffee itself. They're paying for the experience. Mm -hmm. They are paying to sip their coffee on the subway or in their car on the way to work. And uh, I don't know. I'm not going to defend it. You're right. Everyone should some just work be coffee cheap about coffee. Some work coffee is bad. But yeah, some work coffee is bad. But yeah, yeah, I get if it's like if the coffee is really bad and you, you can't if it's undrinkable. I get that. But ours is not. <laughs> ours is not. Ours is fine. Yeah. I mean, I was also not coffee. like some coffee expert. Like, you know, maybe someone who drinks something fancy will like turn their nose at ours. It's good for me. I don't mind. I, then again, I also eat fast food when my wife isn't paying attention. So there's also that. We all have our guilty pleasures. Francesca, what is your not fully formed idea this week? Uh, there's a really unexamined danger to checking your email first thing in the morning. Everybody's like, oh, work-life balance. Isn't it awful that we have our phones on our bedside tables and we just first thing in the morning, we stare at this blue screen, blah, blah, blah. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. When you open up your phone first thing and you start scrolling through emails, this is what happens to me. You read the email. It's now no longer marked as unread. You have some kind of reaction to it, but you're like too tired yet to actually respond or take any action on it. And then you completely forget you got the email until like three days later and it kind of comes back to you in like a vague memory, like a dream. So you're basically, it's basically like waking up and deleting all your emails is what you're doing. So don't do it. Wait until you've had some coffee and you're sitting at a desk and you're in work mode before you start checking your emails. Yeah, this happens to me all the time. I just realized. So I'm not saying you should like stop doing this for work-life balance reasons, whatever. Do, so you don't do even you, like live your life. your email first thing? You just no, I do. Look. I still do this. I oh. mean. <laughs> Aspirational. <laughs> yeah. Aspirationally, I want to change. But I just, yeah, I'm, I'm noticing this is a problem and I'm recognizing the problem and I'm telling you that I need help doing something about it. But you're I, not in my house first thing in the morning, so there's nothing you can really do. Yeah, but there are ways. Shaming you. Becca, what is your half-big take? My take is so underdone. I don't know where I fall. Good. On it. Good. But going out on Friday nights, pro or con. 
Lay out the case for both. I think I might be seasonal, like in the winter, dark, evil well, going times. out is just a no-go in the winter. Yeah, it's just on don't, Friday a night, you're so tired. I think it's kind of nice to have a night in or maybe a cozy dinner. And I know people who fall on that end of the spectrum. Friday night, no-go out. You're too tired anyway, and then you'll just be tired the rest of the weekend. Then again, Friday night, you all you want is like a drink after work. Now, are you considering it a choice between Friday and Saturday night? Like mm, you, you go out one or the other, or is it like sometimes it Friday plus like Saturday or only Saturday? Because for me, like I just never go out. I have a, a yeah, child, a baby. so I'm, a, I'm done. Yeah, I'm I done ever having fun ever again. It can feel like that when you go out on Friday night and you party too hard and you're too frankly, hung over and tired to do anything Saturday night, you've kind of lost that night. And then it feels like the weekend's over yeah. sooner. But then sometimes if you just go home on a Friday and veg out and don't do anything because you're too tired and unmotivated, then you wake up on Saturday and you're like, oh, I already missed 50% of the weekend nights. Yeah. So I, I don't, don't know. know. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Take so unbaked. You know what? Call into our hotline, people. 212-617-0166. Help Becca figure out Do you what like to do. going out on Friday nights? What's the take? <laughs> help us help our take. And this has been Half Big Takes. Half Big Takes. Thank you for listening to another episode of Game Plan. You can find me on Twitter at RZ Greenfield. And I'm at Francesca Today. You can tweet us your Half Big Takes or any other thoughts you have about the show. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash newsletters. If you like this show, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and rate and review and subscribe and tell your friends to rate and review and subscribe. We love hearing from you. This show is produced by Liz Smith and Magnus Henriksen. Head of podcasts is Alec McCabe. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.